The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salek. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, England's chief medical officer has warned that Boris Johnson's new restrictions on the areas worst hit by the virus are not going to be enough to stop the rising infections. Chris Whitty issued that warning after the Prime Minister set out his plan for a three-tier system of COVID alert levels for England, set at medium, high and very high to simplify the differing levels of restrictions. Yeah, and Liverpool is, as we know, one of the hardest hit areas. Tough measures coming in there. Pubs, bars, gyms, all closed. Echoes of March, April time for the Northwest, at least. Johnson says he wants similar restrictions in Greater Manchester, uh, but has indicated that local leaders haven't yet agreed. Remember, the big change now is the government is trying to engage local leadership after they criticised the central government for not doing so before. And then we had this bombshell from Sage Papers released last night showing the Committee of Scientific Advisers had urged ministers to impose immediate national or regional restrictions last month, one option being a short circuit breaker national lockdown. Of course, that did not happen. The questions will be asked why. Well, there are lots of questions in the the way the government has been handling the virus pandemic. One of them is how much it's spent on contracting out services to private companies rather than using civil servants, for example, in developing the test and trace system. Well, the Good Law Project campaign group says the government's failed to account for £3 billion spent on private contracts since the start of the lockdown. Well, three MPs have now helped them launch a legal action over the failure to disclose the details of government spending on such contracts. Caroline Lucas of the Green Party, Labour's Debbie Abrahams and Liberal Democrat Leila Moran have all filed a judicial review accusing the government of breaching the law and its own guidance. Well, we can talk to one of them now. Leila Moran, MP for Oxford West and Abingdon and chair of the all-party parliamentary group on the virus, joins us now. Leila, thanks for being with us. Um, First of all, just give us details of this action and why it's necessary. Well, the government has a legal requirement to publish contracts that have been awarded um, within 30 days of awarding them. And the average amount of time it's taking at the moment to publish these contracts is 72 days. Now, of course, we all understand that with coronavirus, it's a very difficult time. But that transparency is really, really important. £11 billion worth of private contracts have been awarded by the Department of Health. And what we are suing the government over is asking them to publish the contracts of about £3 billion worth of contracts that have yet to be made public. That's a lot of money. And all we want is to be able to look at them, scrutinise them and understand that that money, that public money, has gone to uh, what it's meant to. And there are examples of where this hasn't gone well in the past. Uh, We need transparency if we're going to get this right. 
Right. Uh, and do you disagree in principle with the idea of uh, public or sorry, private companies rather being used for things like this? Or is it simply the uh, the circumstances in, in this case? Not at all. And in fact, I mean, my own view has always been that I'm outcomes based. You know, if the uh, NHS and, you know, we, we see this all the time. There are private companies that are giving kids food in schools. There are uh, in fact, you could argue that GPs, um, by virtue of their contracts, are actually in part uh, paid that way. We, we have to be very careful about just saying a blanket no to any private company doing anything for the state. I've never believed that. But I do think that if you are going to do that, and in, this would apply to the civil service as well, you need full transparency. And what we've seen in the past by other um, uh, contracts that the Good Law Project has unveiled is that there are cases of, for example, £150 million that was spent by the government on face masks that could not be actually used in the NHS. And then there are also questions around who these contracts were awarded to. Were these sound companies? And there do seem to be connections within the Tory party, uh, companies that were set up and within a matter of weeks with no prior uh, history of being able to deliver these contracts are being awarded you know, a £122 million contract has emerged just this week um, that a company run by a former business associate of uh, a Tory peer was awarded, and that was within seven weeks of the company being set up. Now, it's possible that they are doing a fantastic job, but where is the evidence? Let's have, a, let's have scrutiny, and this is public money. This is your and my taxpayer dollar that is going into these contracts. It is absolutely right that we have the details of these contracts so that they can be scrutinised correctly. But, Leila, the point in all this, surely, is that, yes, in, in normal times, all you're saying is right, but these are not normal times. It's, this is really a kind of unwelcome distraction for a government that has its hands absolutely full, struggling to deal with the current crisis. This is firefighting they're doing. So you can surely allow them a little bit of leeway, not drag them into court over something like this? We have allowed them leeway. And in fact, you know, we've contacted them well in advance of this. They, if, they've awarded these contracts, right? So it's not like the paperwork isn't there. It's not like they couldn't pull this together. They can. And we're not talking about paltry sums of money. We're not even talking about hundreds of thousands. We're talking about hundreds of millions of pounds, up to three billion pounds worth of these contracts have yet to be made public. This is not a small amount of money. And yes, I completely, and we all do, we have great sympathy with the position the government's in. But the job of Parliament and the job in a democracy is for parliamentarians to be able to scrutinise the public uh, money and how it's spent. And at the moment, there is no, uh, there's no transparency. And so that's all we're asking for. And if they publish it tomorrow, the action will stop. It's very simple. OK, interesting to hear about that. What about the wider plan from Boris Johnson? Three tiers of risk, measures tailored to that risk. Does that sound like a good next strategy to fight this virus? Well, the uh, all-party group on coronavirus that I chair um, has for some time been very concerned with the lack of clarity from government. That was one of the things that uh, was one of the main learnings from that first lockdown. What are other countries doing that this country isn't? What are we getting right? What are we getting wrong? And one of the things that was made very clear from the start was that the government was going to follow the scientific advice. And it's this false dichotomy that they're presenting to the country, which is, you know, either you bear down on the virus or you have an economy that's going to suffer. But actually what we're seeing right now is we are in the worst possible position. We have an economy that's doing one of the worst in Europe, and yet we have one of the highest uh, numbers of 
uh, deaths per million in Europe. So we aren't doing this right. So I welcome the clarity. However, what's emerging this morning is that they are moving away from what they told us they were doing at the beginning, the government, and they aren't fully listening to what the scientists are suggesting. And the idea that the scientists suggested a short circuit breaker, you know, a one or two week uh, slightly more stringent lockdown might not have been a, we don't know to what extent uh, they were saying, they were talking about closing pubs and restaurants and uh, stopping mixing within households. It, didn't, it wouldn't have been the same quite as the first one. And that the government has decided not to do that, I think is quite worrying. And what worries me about it is, therefore, do they believe, the government, that what they are doing now is enough? And what we've heard from Chris Whitty yesterday and today is that even the very high level will not be enough. So that worries me because actually on the face of it, it's clearer. But is it actually going to work? Surely that's what we all want to know. But Leila, I mean, you're talking obviously about what the scientific view, and we know there isn't a scientific consensus necessarily, but even if you do follow, for example, what Sage, what, what Chris Whitty says, there is another factor in all this, which is the economy, the strength of the economy, whether there will be enough money to pay for all these things, not to mention, uh, of course, the side effects of a kind of lockdown dealing with the virus that could lead to ill health, mental, physical, all kinds of things. So in a way, mm-hmm. isn't it important to balance that? And as Boris Johnson's done, said, we will go so far, we won't go the whole way, because we want to keep things going. Well, if they have balanced it right, then how does that explain the fact that our economy is doing worse than other economies and yet we still have some of the highest case numbers? Clearly, we're not doing something right. And if you look at the countries that have done something right, and I think that the countries we've been particularly interested in as a group have been Germany and Italy. Italy, because at first, as we all know from the horrific scenes that we saw right at the beginning of this pandemic, had a terrible time of it. And overwhelmed their health service, but they learned from it. And what they did was they devolved a lot of the power that was needed to the region. Test, trace, isolate was run from there, just as it is in Germany. And they stringently listened to what the scientists said was needed. If you get the cases down low enough, then test, trace, isolate becomes very effective. You then have one or two cases that you can follow right to the beginning of where it started and dampen down the cases at that point. What it seems has happened, and this was very interesting, I thought, as an intervention from Andy Burnham yesterday, was that because the government wanted to kickstart the economy, it let up on the lockdown measures too early in parts of the north, where their case numbers were too high for test trace isolate to be effective. And so that has led to the situation that we are in now. So if the government wants to take a balanced approach, and actually I agree, you know, we always have to look at how do we get people going again? These businesses that are on their knees, my post bag is full of people losing their jobs, really, really scared. I completely accept that. But surely the way to do it is to bear down on the virus to such an extent that then you can open up the economy with confidence, have a system in place that bears down on the number of cases. And that is the best of both worlds. What we've ended up with now with this shambolic government is the worst of both. And so I really hope that this three-tier system system is a start of them beginning to get a grip of this, getting clarity on this. But I am sorry to say that based on the evidence we've seen over the last few months, Boris Johnson has not proven himself and he is yet to. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? 
which companies from big tech to startups will dominate, and where do the risks and unintended consequences lie. I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions, alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. And uh, Roger, I mean, it's a pretty dreary segment that we've got here in general, but let's start with those job numbers, which weren't great. Yeah, we can't avoid it. The number of job cuts in the UK have jumped by the most on record. Redundancies climbed 114,000 between June and August, meaning more than eight in every 1,000 employees lost their jobs. Employment fell almost five times the level estimated by economists, and the jobless rate rose to the highest since 2017. Separately, the Institute of Fiscal Studies is forecasting taxes will need to rise by more than £40 billion a year by 2025, to stop public debt spiralling. So a lot to look forward to, really. Yeah, and brace yourself. Here's as exciting as it gets, or as optimistic as it gets for the whole of our other stories. The government split over how to deal with polluters and how to make them pay for their emissions after Brexit. So the Treasury pushing for a countrywide carbon tax, but Bayes, the Department for Business, Energy and Environmental uh, Industrial Strategy, rather, uh, is drawing up a new system. It's quite similar to the existing EU cap and trade programme where companies are allowed to admit a certain amount and then they can trade whatever allowance they don't use. And some of the UK's biggest emitters lobbying against the carbon tax that the Treasury is reportedly putting forward, saying it would put them at a competitive disadvantage to EU rivals. I feel like that is an interesting point to make when we're talking about uh, trying to strike a trade deal and uh, looking at somebody, really, who's going to lose out, I feel, from that. Almost inevitably. And, uh, well, it's when you thought it couldn't get more depressing. Workers from ethnic minority groups in London are paid almost a quarter less than white British employees, and that's by far the biggest pay gap in the country. Nationally, the difference, in fact, shrank to 2.3%. That's the smallest since 2012, so that's something, I suppose, to see as a good thing, perhaps coming from the Office for National Statistics report. In the east of England, interestingly, workers from a minority ethnicity actually paid more. But the size of the gap in London that the ONS says is in part attributable to the higher income levels for both groups in the capital, giving a greater scope for a large disparity. So plenty of work still to be done there. Well, let's bring it on to Brexit. The end seemingly in sight at the end of the year. The transition period finishes. Britain goes its own way in the world. Maybe we get an EU trade deal. Maybe we won't. But either way, talk of leave and remain, hopefully, will be left behind. But what tribes will live on. How will they live on in another form? Joining us now is Robert Ford. He's Professor of Political Science at Manchester University. His book Brexit Land argues that the culture war that's broken out since the referendum is here to stay. Um, so, so Rob, tell us, I mean, if you talk about leavers and remainers, I can give you a pretty stereotypical picture of either of them. It's probably not uh, too true. In fact, what do they look like beyond their differences over EU membership? Well, the, the leave and remain divide is really unique in two respects. Firstly, it's more universally shared, those two identities, than any of our other political identities. You mentioned that you could immediately call to mind a kind of stereotype of leavers and remainers. That's true of nine in ten of the population, that they can both say which side they're on and also give you an account of what these two groups look like. So that's really important because that makes this a very powerful form of identity. In terms of what it's rooted in, it's particularly rooted 
in differences in identity attachments and social values, which in turn are often rooted in educational experience. So what we see is uh, university graduates tend to be more liberal and tend to be more remain. Uh, school leavers, older voters tend to be more uh, nationalistic, more socially conservative. They tend to be more uh, leave. And in addition, ethnic minorities also uh, tend to align more with the kind of socially liberal remain living side of this divide as well. And this is very different to the kind of class-based politics that we've been traditionally used to in Britain. Yeah, it is a fascinating distinction. And, and obviously it came about at the referendum or, in, or was reflected in the referendum. But now we're four years on and, and maybe see the end of it this week. Do you see those divisions remaining? Do you see this as actually something rather more fundamental in our society uh, that, that's a new division between people? Uh, yes, because the referendum is a critical moment in the story. But in the book, we describe it as a moment of awakening. It's essentially a moment when people become aware that these divides have opened up in society, but they've actually been building for decades. Uh, the division between graduates and school leavers has, only, has always been there, but it didn't become electorally important until recently because the graduate electorate just wasn't that big. Uh, even when Tony Blair was first elected just over 20 years ago, only one in 10 voters had been to the university. Now it's approaching 35-40%. Uh, you know, 20-30 years ago, the electorate was 90% odd white. Uh, now it's 80% odd white and falling. So these divisions are becoming more important because the electorate is becoming more fractured uh, along these lines. Uh, and what the referendum did was catalyze that by giving it a name, by giving it an identity. You know, these voters now had a shorthand for saying who they were and who they weren't. It's leave, it's remain. And uh, as, as you mentioned, we all very quickly call to mind what that means, leave or remain. And it's about a lot more than just our views of the EU. Um, what about the left-right dichotomy that you alluded to as well? Is that here to stay as well, or is this leave right um, a replacement for that? It's basically uh, at right angles for that, and that causes all sorts of problems for politicians. So those kind of socially conservative, nationalistic, leave-leaning uh, voters in the red wall uh, that have formed such an important part of the current conservative majority coalition, they're economically left-wing, they're economically populist. They're not big fans of the free market. They're in favour of more redistribution. They want more money thrown at state services. That puts them very much at odds on economic issues uh, with both traditional conservative voters and with conservative politicians. Uh, conversely, a lot of the voters that Labour have been picking up, who are more sort of prosperous, uh, middle-class graduates with socially liberal views, don't necessarily have a strongly left-wing view uh, on the economy. So it becomes a balancing act for, the, for these politicians because you've got these two very different sets uh, of conflicts that cut across each other, often in the same voter. So do you think this is going to mean a, a more confrontational style of politics? So we had a period, maybe you could argue perhaps from the end of the 70s through the Thatcher period, and then the 90s, where there was almost a, a kind of central consensus up to a point, managerial it was described as, in terms of politics at the top. Is that going to be over just because these divisions are now so clear? Uh, yeah, I, th I think, uh, I mean, I'm sorry to add to the bad news that you already were piling up there, but I, I think we are in. <laughs> a period of quite polarised and tribal politics, that's quite possible, for, for two reasons. Firstly, the sheer intensity of these identities, they have a lot of emotional weight behind them. People feel very strongly about their attachment to their side uh, and their negative views 
uh, of the other side, but also the nature of the issues involved. Issues like nationalism, immigration, cultural change, Black Lives Matter, for example, this summer as well. They're very emotionally hot. The arguments about them get polarized very quickly um, because they're often about not, you know, how much money should we spend on X? They're about uh, is X a good or bad thing? Are people who like uh, X good or bad people? And so people can get very quickly quite worked up about these issues, uh, even more so than, than the traditional economic issues. Um, what about Labour? Because I feel like at the last election, or at least leading up to it, they never quite managed to, to own either tribe, whereas the Conservatives went very heavily after the Leavers and were quite successful there. Looking ahead now, new leadership, uh, m- maybe new priorities. How can the party make itself more appealing to, to both of these groups? Well, I mean, that, that's the difficult question that they, that they face is, do they want to try and bridge this divide or do they want to throw in their lot uh, with one side uh, or the other side? Uh, on, on the one hand, you know, it does look like they need to bridge the divide just because of the geography of our uh, politics right now. They need seats from, from both sides of this divide in order to form a majority. Uh, on, on the other hand, uh, a, a consequence of the fragmentation of that Remain vote is that it's much easier to imagine Labour uh, coming into power on the back of a kind of multi-party coalition with the SNP, uh, with the Liberal Democrats, or not even a coalition, a confidence and supply arrangement. So it might be that they'd almost be better off competing with the Conservatives for the more socially conservative leave-oriented uh, end of this uh, divide, uh, and then hope that some of these other parties who also appeal to sort of Liberal Remainers pick up mm. seats too, because they're much more likely to, to throw their lot in with Labour than with the Conservatives if we get another hung Parliament. And I suppose it's interesting. We were talking about England here almost entirely. What about Scotland? Um, the tribes there are, are, are similar in a way, I suppose, although obviously much more support uh, for, for Remain. Absolutely. I mean, Scotland is fascinating because Scotland has had two divisive constitutional referendums, and both of them have had this kind of, um, you know, shaking the snow globe effect uh, on politics. Uh, and in Scotland... The way the chips have fallen is is that the the divide over uh, the UK uh, and Scotland's role within it has become the primary uh, dividing line rather than the divide uh, over the EU. So there are just as many voters in Scotland who share this kind of socially conservative us-against-them type outlet. But whereas in England, uh, the Brexiteer vote will tend to see the threatening outgroups as the EU and immigrants in Scotland, they tend to see the threatening outgroups as Westminster and the English. Uh, so you get the same kinds of voters uh, being channeled towards a very different political argument. You know, we need to protect ourselves from this overweening uh, political union that's telling us what to do. That's also the argument in Scotland. It's just the overweening political union that's telling us what to do with the one at Westminster. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.